Take your seats and pick up your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 11. I'm excited about it, and I'm, I'm hoping I can get you excited about it. Uh, but let's ask the Lord to help us. Uh, Father, as we've, as we've just sung, we, we pray, Lord, that you would feed us from your word, open our eyes to the truths of it, uh, truths that were written thousands of years ago, and yet they are your living word. You're, you're speaking to your people here, telling us of the, the, the exciting things you have in store. Uh, so, Lord, please help us to understand these things. Move our hearts by the truths we hear tonight. If we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, how are your Christmas preparations going? How are you getting on with things? Right? You've had, what are we now, the 10th of December? How many of you have not put up any decorations yet? Oh, well, you're late, aren't you? Uh, we managed to get in early this year. Uh, we got down to Lidl right at the, you know, at the end of November, and we got the bargain Christmas tree. So we're, we're sitting pretty, 16.99 or something, for our Christmas tree, and it's looking absolutely lovely. Our house is decorated top to bottom. Um, we've, put a, we've put a lot of work in. And to be honest with you, Christmas is. It's a lot of work, isn't it? Um, you know, you know we, we've, been, we've had all of this stuff um, done and, and the outside of our house as well. Uh, a couple of years ago, I put the lights up on the outside of our house and uh, people still remind me of how terrified they were watching me crawling over the roof of our house to get, the, to get that look just right. It's a lot of work. Uh, and I, I thank the Lord every day for my wife, uh, who, bless her, has over the years recognized just how reluctant I am to write Christmas cards and has kind of basically just taken the job on. You know, that the hand cramp, making sure you get everything, everyone a right card. And then, of course, you know, a few days before Christmas, someone gives you a card don't that you haven't given them a card to, and it's that social faux pas, and it's all very awkward, and, and you either you have to decide whether you're going to write one or not. And you've got to find all the suitable gifts. How many hours do you spend looking for the right gift for that really awkward person? I've got a few of those in my life, really awkward, don't know what to get them. They've got everything already. Uh, and not only are we shopping for gifts, we've already started shopping for all of the food we're going to eat in a few weeks' time. The freezer's getting stuck, the fridge has got stuff in it. And then you scale it up a level and look at what the local councils are doing. Uh, you know, putting up the decorations in different towns. You've got Blackpool famously with their illuminations. We've got Matlock Bath and all of that lot going on. Chesterfield have put a tree up, looking a little bit sad, I've got to say. Um, but they've made an effort. You drive up greenways, and it's like a winter wonderland, isn't it? All of these lights and stuff. The work that goes into it, that's the point I'm making here. What a lot of work to put in for really one, one day, isn't it, when you think about it? We're celebrating one day, and there's all of that work. Why, what are we celebrating? Well, I guess for a lot of people out there in the world... Uh, the actual reason isn't actually even important. I doubt they even really think about the reason. It's just a fun time of year, and it's just what we do, and it's happy, and it's jolly, and we just, you know, we do it all, and we're going to have time off and see family, and it's all very nice. Uh, you know, the reason for it really is Christmas, and that means nothing, but it's just, well, I'm doing it because it's Christmas. Well, that seems a bit mad to me, really. I mean, you can sit down and think about that a little bit. To be worth us all collectively putting in that much effort to celebrate one day of the year, all of us together doing it, it seems to me that Christmas needs to mean something really important 
for that to all make sense. Otherwise, it's just mad. And I think Isaiah 11 gives, gives us that, that reason, tells us why Christmas is such an incredible thing. And that's what I want you to see tonight. So to understand what Isaiah's doing, I just want to bring you into Isaiah's world a little bit as we start. I wonder if you're familiar with Isaiah's world. It's probably not the most... We, we pay attention to Isaiah at Christmas, don't we? Really, if we're being honest, mostly. And maybe a bit at Easter, actually, you know, with Isaiah 53. But what's going on in Isaiah's world? Isaiah's a prophet who prophesies to the southern kingdom of Judah. There's a little map popped up there on the screen for you. He's the, the, the red bit there. He's prophesying there. And he's prophesying from the time that a king called Isaiah has died. That's when he's called to be a prophet. And he prophesies all the way through the reign of Hezekiah. So that's, what does that mean? Well, that, that's quite a few kings, actually, that he's prophesying uh, amidst. And you need to know what's going on in their reigns, perhaps, a little bit. Well, King Uzziah, so that those are the kings there in the list. King Uzziah, who also went by the name Azariah, if, depending which book of the Bible you're reading, he had a, a long and prosperous reign in Judah. But in his latter years, if you read his story, he became quite a proud man. You know, he was just, he was on his, laying, he was resting on his laurels a bit. He'd had lots of victories, lots of wealth. He became really quite proud to the point where he decided that he could actually, I don't need the priests in the temple. I can go in and just do this myself because I'm, I'm Isaiah, right? And I'm God's man. And I'm so he became really proud and God had to humble him. So God actually made him a leper till the day he died. That's really interesting, isn't it? If you're a leper, you can't even go to the temple, right? What a humbling for this man. And so the kingdom actually then, understandably, went into a rapid economic decline. And Isaiah's living through all of this. This is the first sort of stage of his life. Now, Isaiah's son, Jotham, took over, King Jotham. And he started to restore the fortunes of the kingdom but one of the things notable in his life is he starts to allow a lot of pagan worship. He's not a pagan worshipper himself. He's not worshiping false gods himself. But he allows it in. And it starts to take root in the kingdom. And he says, there's a sort of rot coming in into the kingdom. And Isaiah is prophesying through this period of time. And he's watching this happening. Now, he's succeeded by his son Ahaz. And Ahaz is a complete disaster. You could almost think, it looks to me like Jotham opens the door a little crack, and Ahaz swings it wide open. Ahaz rapidly leads the kingdom of Judah into, into idolatry of a horrific kind. I mean, they are becoming really bad at this time. So he puts a new altar in the temple. Imagine that. Goes into the temple in Jerusalem. He has another different altar designed, and, and he just, he's... I mean, it's unbelievable, isn't it? When you think of how protective God is over what goes on at the temple. He puts his own altar up, gets rid of the temple. It's just incredible. And he even, the pinnacle of his wickedness is he sacrifices his own children to his pagan gods, this, this king. He's a complete write-off. And Aram, the, 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 the nation of Aram, they enter into war with Judah. And Ahaz gives huge amounts of his wealth to Assyria to come save him rather than turning to God. He calls for the superpower, come down, save me. And then just after that, a civil war breaks out and staggering numbers in Judah are killed in battle with Israel. And staggering numbers are taken as prisoners as well. Judah loses big. So these are bleak days. 
Assyria then eventually come back and they, they strip even more wealth from Judah. You know, they, they turn traitor. They're like a snake that bites the hand. And through it all, Ahaz, as all of these bad things are happening, Ahaz is so far gone that all he does is he clings even more tightly to his idols rather than repenting. He's a disaster of a king. And Isaiah is prophesying through all of this, right? That's all going on. And when God calls Isaiah to become his prophet, take a look at the brief that he gives to Isaiah. Uh, we, well, I think we had something on this fairly recently. It's in Isaiah 6, if you want to turn to it. I think I've got, we can pop it up on the screen. Isaiah 6, this is Isaiah's call. And God says to him, look, Isaiah, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Can you see what's being said there? Basically, Isaiah is called to go and preach to a people who are not going to listen or to respond to his message. What a dire call for this poor bloke in this bleak situation of the kingdom. The people become like their king, do you see? They're like their kings. Their hearts have gone after idols, and they no longer really care what God has said, and they're just going to be deaf to it all. So Isaiah's job is going to be to basically speak to the wall, speak to the hand because the faces aren't listening, right? And he's going to do it for many, many long years. Now, how would you respond to being told to go on such a thankless task, I wonder? Well, Isaiah asks a question that we probably would be likely to ask. Listen to this. So verse 11 there, just following on from what we just read. I said, says Isaiah, for how long, O Lord? Are you calling me to do this? How long do you want me to do that for? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. That's the outlook, Isaiah. That's how I want you to just keep doing this until there's nothing left. So keep prophesying to these willfully deaf and blind people until everything falls apart. It's interesting, isn't it? Because so you, you've got to remember that Israel, they are God's chosen nation. I mean, you can't read the Old Testament without seeing that, can you? They're his people, God's loved people. They're the nation he's blessed, he's given the promised land to them. It's wonderful, that. But what lies ahead for Judah? And more importantly, did you notice at the end of that reading, what lies ahead actually for the precious house of David? You know, the real royal line of of Israel and Judah. What lies ahead? Well, the shock news is that the royal line there in in verse 13, the holy seed, look at it, is going to become a stump. This is the picture language that God's using with Isaiah. Enemies are going to come and cut down that proud tree so that there's nothing left except just the roots and stump in the ground. It's a, it's a picture language there, do you see? For, for felling, for cutting down, get this, the greatest hope that any faithful Israelite might still have in, in the land. That, that they've got a promised king coming. No, chop it down. The, the future then, if, that's, if that tree is felled, the, the future just holds darkness and bleakness, doesn't it? It's depressing stuff. But, but actually, isn't, <coughs> isn't our world a little bit like the world of Isaiah, when you think about it? Wendy was just praying this, actually. 
wasn't she? The West is not Israel, but we do have a long and fruitful uh, Christian heritage in the West. We still live with many of the benefits that Christianity brought to our land centuries ago. We've got education for all. We didn't have that until Christianity came to our shores. Hospitals, countless charitable works and things that have been established, a just rule of law based on God's law. These are all blessings, aren't they, that, that, that we, we have in the past received. But as a nation, we, we have turned our back on God, and we're doing more so all the time. We've decided that we know better. That's what the human heart's like. And so we've, we've begun to tear up God's law. You see, you see it almost every month, don't you? We're tearing up God's law and, write, and putting in our own laws instead. What we think is best, what we think is right. Self-rule. So instead of the God who, who made us, we are worshipping all kinds of false gods, just like is going, was going on there in Judah. The idols of money and sex and power and self and celebrity and wanting the best for me thinking that all those things are going to bring happiness and prosperity, which I'm sure kings like Ahaz thought they would, but instead they bring only ruin. And it's against that grim backdrop, both, both of Isaiah's day and the grim backdrop of our day, that's why this is so cutting edge, isn't it? That actually Isaiah is speaking these words of prophecy. They're for you and me. They're for you and me, these words. Much of Isaiah's prophecies, when you read through the book of Isaiah, concern things close in time, the time that, that he's writing. So about things going on in his day. But especially in this chapter, we see the prophets speaking of a greater and a more distant hope somewhere off there in the future that's coming. So see how it begins. Look at verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch that will bear fruit. Do you remember the stump? The, the tree cut down, all the hope gone? That's the, house, that's the house of David. David's the son of Jesse. That's where David comes from. He comes from Jesse. And, and though a horrific judgment is coming, the axe is being wielded already, after which it will seem that, that that royal house has fallen and all is lost... And of course, that did happen when they went into exile in Babylon later, the king taken off in chains, the royal line seeming to have ended. But look at the stump, says Isaiah, as he looks forwards to the future. Look at it, zoom in on the stump. Do you see? There's a shoot creeping up, growing out of the stump. The life never, never completely left that stump, do you see? Out of that stump springs forth a branch. The word there literally means like a sapling, a new, a new tree growing out of the stump. And it's fruitful. Do you see that? It's one that's going to produce a lot of fruit. So this hope-filled chapter is all about the keeping of a glorious promise, a promise made to all of God's people, us included. And it's a promise of a king unlike any other. So, yes, when you see, this is the point, really. This is why we read this passage at Christmas. When you see the, major, the, the manger scene uh, at Christmas time, with that, that helpless little baby wrapped up and placed on the straw, you, you need to recognize that there lies God Almighty. 
the promised king. There lies the king of Christmas. That's what this passage is about, the king of Christmas. And we sing about it, don't we? To you in David's town this day is born of David's line, the saviour who is Christ the Lord, and this shall be the sign. The heavenly babe you there shall find, to human view displayed, all meanly wrapped in swathing bands and in a manger laid. It's Isaiah 11. And he is worth celebrating. Why is he worth celebrating? Well, let's take a look at this king and consider his rule and his kingdom. I want to persuade you this evening that all of that preparation for Christmas is worth it if you're celebrating this. So let's have a look. His rule then. First of all, his rule. First of all, his rule is marked by divine wisdom. Let's try and go through this passage nice and quickly tonight. But we want to take it in, don't we? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, this king. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful? I mean, this is something probably none of us have ever, ever experienced. But wouldn't it be wonderful to be, to be ruled by a truly wise leader? To look at the leadership of your country and say, oh, the wisdom there. That, that would be, I, wonder, I wonder how many times in history anyone has ever said that, especially in modern history, about the, the leadership of their country. The, the closest, I think, that any kingdom ever comes to this in the Bible is probably the reign of Solomon, before the kingdoms are split north and south. You've got Solomon. He's the wisest ruler who ever lived, we're told. And because of his wisdom, what happened in, in the kingdom? Well, they had prosperity, and they had peace. You can, you can read through the whole of the story of Solomon's reign. No wars. Amazing. No one's fighting anyone. It's just prosperity. It's wonderful. Everyone is blessed. They were never wealthier. They never had so much peace. It's, it's an incredible reign. But even Solomon does some pretty foolish things. Namely, he's one of the ones that opens the door to idolatry coming into the country. But this promised king, this promised king in Isaiah 11, the king of Christmas, he has what's really, really here is divine wisdom. Do you see that? The wisdom of God, greater far than the wisdom of Solomon. And can you, can you see why? We're told here that the Spirit, capital S in your Bibles, the Spirit of God, Spirit of Yahweh, the Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of knowledge, is going to rest on this king. So he will be, this is what you've got to get. And this, is, this is why it's so Christmassy, isn't it? He's a man like you and I. He's a human being like you and I. He's from human rootstock. He's grown out of Jesse's stump. But, a, but, but, but upon him is this spirit of Yahweh, God Almighty, resting and abiding. There's something different about this one who is fully a man, but not, not just a man. Every decision then that this king makes is going to be the right one. Imagine that as a leader, always going to make the right decision. It's always going to be the decision that will bless his people the most and bring him the maximum glory. You know, we were reminded yesterday at, at the men's breakfast, we were over in the other room there, that the book of Proverbs tells us, you probably all know this, that the fear of the Lord uh, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. It's only those who fear the Lord who are truly wise. 
That basically means that they care more about what God says than about what anyone else says or thinks. That's what the fear of the Lord, I think, is, basically. They choose God's way over the ways that are preached at us by our world. The world says that. It doesn't matter because God says this. That's the one who fears the Lord. That's the way they're thinking. Now, Isaiah paints an even stronger picture here. Look at it. Not only does this king resolve to always do things God's way, irrespective of what public opinion might be, but, but look at the phrase there. He delights in the fear of the Lord. Now, unexpected statements okay, in the Bible should always make us look at them really, really carefully. I think that's an unexpected statement, isn't it? Because it's telling us that apparently there is a kind of fear that can be a delight. You ever had a fear that's a delight? That's weird, isn't it? Nehemiah agrees. So Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah says this, Lord, he's praying, he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a fear that can be delighted in. That's very odd. It sounds weird, but we can delight, actually, in a being that is at the same time terrifying in one sense and mighty and holy and powerful. I think, I think C.S. Lewis probably helps us here with his portrayal of Aslan. When you look at those, those wonderful Narnia stories that he gives us. Think of Aslan. You know, you, you've got this, this idea here that the great lion, right, whose roar can make things wither and freeze with fear. He's mighty and he's powerful. And yet he's gentle and he's kind and he's good. And children want to ride on his back. This fearsome king of the beasts. Those who know him find that they delight in him and love him at the same time as they reverently fear him. Have a sense of reverence towards him. With the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of God resting on him, this wise king delights to put God's word, to put God's values and priorities first most in his reign. That's divine godly wisdom. We're going to speed up because he also has perfect discernment in verse 3. Look, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions to the poor of the earth. So this king is always going to judge things correctly. When he's assessing a situation, he's going to nail it every time. And he's, look at what's said here, he is not going to be limited by what he sees and hears. I think that's the key here. Because we are, aren't we? We're limited by what we see and hear. And any parent or teacher will understand this. When you're dealing with an incident that has happened, a clash between two sides, whoever they may be, it's very hard to actually see the picture of what's happened really, really clearly. You're left with traces of physical evidence of whatever devastation has happened. Um, and you're left with multiple stories coming from different sides. And those stories are always going to be told, no matter how lovely the children might be, with a bias towards the one telling the story. They're always going to make themselves look like they were not the one that started it, or, or whatever it was. It used to, uh, it used to amaze me, when, when our children, particularly when they were little, how long it would take to try and get to the bottom of what had happened uh, in, in any kind of like argument or fight. 
like half an hour of talking and the incident only took a minute and you're there trying to tease. But what did you say to him? What did you say to her? I mean, consider this is what it's like, isn't it? Because, we don't, because we've only got our eyes and ears. So, so consider how long it's taken to inquire about Partygate or any of the other things that our former prime minister might or might not have done. Uh, trying to figure out what it is and you know, find the records and the texts and the WhatsApp messages and all of this lot. Apparently, the ongoing COVID inquiry, I read this week, has already cost the taxpayer over £100 million. That should make you angry. It really should, shouldn't it? £100 million of taxpayers' money just to find out what on earth, who, what, what did we do, and who did what. But this king... He has the spirit of knowledge and understanding. He knows all the facts. He's not limited to what he's seeing and hearing. He, he knows it all. No inquiries need to be conducted. None of it. He knows everything about everyone, you and I included. And he will use all of that information rightly and do justice. He will be measured and he will be appropriate in his action. Thirdly, you see this king, his reign is a reign of, of complete justice. Look at verse 4. With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. I mean, we want a just world, don't we? Does anyone really not want a just world? A world where there's actually justice? The only people who, who don't want justice are probably those who are profiting from the victims of injustice, aren't they? Really, they're the only ones who, who've got any problem with justice. And they themselves will cry out for justice if you take their stuff from them, won't they? Because we all want it fair. The problem is that we have no way of achieving real justice in this world. Not complete, total justice. We'll never do it. No political system yet devised by man has ever really, if we're honest, has ever really come close. Whilst the heart of mankind is sinful, it's so frustrating, isn't it? There will always be those who are oppressed and there will always be those who oppress. But this king will bring absolute perfect justice to the world. That's what we're celebrating here. He will do it. He will make poverty history. It won't just be a slogan. We won't even be thinking about poverty anymore. The guilty will not get away with it. There will be no miscarriages of justice in our courts. Under his rule, there'll be no benefit fraud and there'll be no embezzlement and there'll be no fiddling the taxes. No special privileges or loopholes for the rich that make us few. No poor crying out for justice in the courts. He will achieve this total justice. Look at what the verses say here. Amazing. There in verse 4. With no more effort than his speech and his breath. No effort. The poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden, they'll rejoice. The wicked will tremble. Constant attentiveness, that's another characteristic of his reign. Verse 5, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. It's an interesting picture language we've got there again. See, a belt or a sash, well, that's something that you put on when you're ready for action. We use a belt today just to keep our trousers up, don't we, so they don't fall down. But in the, in the ancient Near East, you wore a belt when you went out and about and you didn't want your movement to be restricted. The expression used here and elsewhere 
you know, like, you know, in, in, do you remember the, the King James Version of the Bible? You've got this, uh, this expression of, gird up your loins. That's the idea here. He's going to gird up his loins with these belts. The Israelites were told to do this when they were eating the Passover on that dreadful night when they were about to leave Egypt, waiting for the call to depart. Girded loins, the belts on. The idea here, then, is ready for action. I think that's the idea. This king is ready for action. He stands poised to act in righteousness and in faithfulness 24-7. Always got the belt on. So his, then, it is a reign of wisdom, of discernment, of justice, of knowledge. This, this sapling coming from Jesse's stump, this great promised king in David's line, he is a king worth celebrating because get this, he's the kind of king who can actually put right all that is wrong with our world. Staggering, isn't it? Everything wrong with the world. This king, the king of Christmas, he can put it all right. And Isaiah now, in excitement, I think, you know, he must be excited by this point, he's going to move on to give us a glimpse of what that's going to look like. We know these verses so well, don't we? You have to remember, this is prophetic language. It uses imagery that we're, all, we're familiar with to try and describe things that we cannot really even quite grasp. Okay, so, so the things are going to go beyond what we're being told here. But here's some principles put down in these pictures. Look at his kingdom. It's an amazing kingdom. And we saw in verse 4, actually, a little hint there, it's not just Israel. Okay? It's encompassing the whole earth, according to verse 4. And it's going to be marked by, first of all, have a look, by reconciliation. It's a kingdom of reconciliation. Verse 6, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. What's going on there? Well, obviously, to, to understand the imagery in these verses, I think you've got to remember those early chapters of Genesis 1 to 3. Isn't it great that we've done Genesis recently? God's made this perfect world in Genesis 1 to 3 where sinful rebellion from mankind has ruined it and put it all under a curse. That's the setting. L Lily, our, our playful boxer dog at home, our new acquisition, she has really one serious behavioral problem that we're struggling to overcome. Okay? She comes when we call her. She's lovely. She sits down. She'll lie down. She'll wait. She'll, you know, she'll even go to her bed when she's told to go to her bed. She's lovely. She's only little, and she's doing all of these things. But once she sees a small animal, everything just goes out the window. Why is that? Because something in her, right, deep in her doggy nature, right down there, wants to play, you know, play with the cat, she just wants to play with the cat. I'm sure if she could speak, it would just be, I just want to play. I just want to play with the cat. In this broken world, as a rule, the cat cannot lie down with the dog. It just can't, okay? You, you, not without a lot of training, okay? And a lot of therapy for the cat. It's not going to happen, right? Because that's, that's how broken the world. You see it reflected in nature around us. And Genesis chapter 3 hints at this when it speaks about You've got in the curse the clash between the snake and mankind. And more explicitly, talks about it in, in Genesis 9. Do you remember Genesis 9 too? Where Noah comes out of the ark and he's told that the fear and dread of you will be on all the beasts of the earth. You've got this interesting sort of clash here. The curse left us, you see, 
with nature red in tooth and claw, as people call it. But in this new world, under the rule of the king of Christmas, not only will predators and prey lie down together reconciled, but even a little child will be able to lead them. You get the illusion there? This is a kingdom where God's design for mankind and for the world is actually realized. Do you remember Genesis 1, where the mandate is given to mankind to have dominion over, over the earth? Here, even the youngest child, we're told, will exercise that loving dominion and rule over the creatures of the earth. It's a fixed world. Secondly, you get this recreation, kind of like a change in nature going on here. Look at verse 7. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The point made here, it's moving the point on from the previous verse, is that of a, a complete change of nature within the created order, within the animals, within the beasts. Their diet will change. Do you see that? Actual diet's going to change. Feeding, even for a bear or for a lion, is no longer going to require death. They're not going to need death to feed them anymore. Does that mean that you and I will all be vegetarians? Maybe. It's a frightening thought. I think God will make a fruit that tastes like bacon or something like that, okay? But the point, don't miss the point. The point is that the vicious cycle here of predator and prey, it's broken. No longer even necessary. This will be a kingdom, a world that's full of life rather than death. A change completely in the nature. And then, and then thirdly, look, a restoration. A removal of the curse, actually, I think we're seeing in verse 8. Look at it. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. Can you imagine, picture that scene. It's an amazing scene. I mean, in our, in our present world, which is all broken and messed up, that would be the kind of incident that would get a kindergarten shut down, wouldn't it? You know, playtime and the, the, the sand pit is just full of cobras. You know, we just have cobra nests around the sand pit, waiting for little ones to come out and play. At, at, it's just, that's not going to happen, is it? But the real point here, surely, is the curse is lifted here in this new world. Genesis 3, it dictated the relationship between the snake and the offspring of the woman would be one of heel striking and head crushing, wouldn't it? That's, that's really what's supposed to be going on. And behind the image, we see that pitched battle, don't we, between mankind and our greatest adversary, Satan himself. The essence of the curse under which creation groans. But, but here, in the kingdom of the king of Christmas, that curse is no more. And verse 9, I think, is just summing the whole thing up. Look at it. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This will be a kingdom where the Lord is known. He's known. How do the waters cover the sea? They cover the sea completely. That's the point. Okay? Every bit of the sea is covered with water. Yeah, all the blue bits on the map, that's water. It covers the whole lot. There's no bits that are dry in the sea. And likewise, all in this kingdom, a kingdom saturated by, known by, and knowing its king, the king of Christmas, the Lord. It's amazing. Are you not even a little bit excited about that kingdom? 
See, it's more here in, in this picture of the king and his reign and the kingdom than I can neatly sum up. But Isaiah's aim, I believe, is to get his reader, is to get us to stare in awe and wonder at what God has in store through his king. Because we live in a broken world, like Isaiah did. A world broken in so many ways. And despite still maintaining actually a, a measure of beauty and wonder, which our world does, I mean, we live in a part that's beautiful, don't we? It's still full of rebellion and violence and pain and frustration and death. That's our world. Just when you least expect it. Tragedy. Imagine what that world would be like if it's still beautiful despite those things. Imagine what it would be like if it was all fixed and put right. Wow. Imagine a world of prosperity and peace and safety and love where there is perfect justice where the king rules over all and is attentive to every need and dispenses limitless resources to meet them. Imagine a world that ceased to groan. No more disasters. No more humanitarian crises or wars where the beauty of creation gets to shine with a glory that surpasses anything you or I have ever seen. This is what the king of Christmas brings. Hope to a broken world. And we celebrate Christmas because we celebrate this king. That's what Christmas is about. This king born in a manger. Born to die on a cross for you and I. Born that man no more may die. Born to save us from our sin to redeem men, women and children for that kingdom. The kingdom he will one day fully establish and he invites you and I to come and be part of that, that kingdom, that vision. Bow to the king of Christmas. Give your all to him. He deserves worship of, of all your heart, mind, soul and strength, doesn't he? That's how great he is. And perhaps this year, celebrate the astounding hope that Christmas is all about. I reckon that's worth all the effort, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, what an amazing hope we have in your promised King, our Lord Jesus Christ. He who came to this broken world to redeem a people for himself, to be his very own, to be with him forever. So we ask that this Christmas you would kindle within each one of us a sense of wonder anew and excitement as we anticipate the fulfilment of all of your promises. We know that every one of them is yes in Christ Jesus, our King, in whose good name we pray. Amen.